Welcome to We Fish ASA, the best third fishing show on the radio or the internet in the entire USA. I'm Steve Sarley. My partner is Dave Kranz. We Fish ASA is always pleased to offer you conversation with the most interesting, the most informative, the most entertaining, as well as some of the biggest names in the world of fishing. We Fish ASA is brought to you by the proud industry members of the American Sport Fishing Association, in particular St. Croix, the best rods on earth. Calcutta, makers of a line of products that fit your fishing lifestyle and passion. And Daiwa, we've got your bass covered. Daiwa. We Fish ASA presents a new episode of our one-hour podcast each and every week. Available 24-7 everywhere you get your podcast. Don't forget to download the free app from the App Store for iDevices. Easiest way to listen to We Fish ASA. Don't forget, you can always listen to the show at our website, wefishasa.com. Dave and I record uh, the show at two locations in Chicago. We send the audio down to Lando Lakes, Florida, to Berserk Productions. Our executive producer, Brad Nearman, he puts it all together, makes it sound as good as it does. Hey, Brad, thanks for everything you do. like to tell you who we've got on today. Of course, Dan Johnson. St. Croix will be on with Dave talking about turnover. We're not talking about those little fruit-filled pastries. We're talking about uh, a very interesting phenomenon that a lot of people don't understand and really need to get familiar with. Fall turnover. Then Kieran Moody. Dave uh, signed up. Uh, a, Dave fishes the uh, Toyota circuit for uh, Major League Fishing. Went to an event uh, and ended up with Kieran Mooney as his partner. And Kieran Mooney pulls out a fly rod. Got a bass fisherman in the front of the boat with, with a casting rod. And you've got a fly fisherman in the back of the boat. Want to hear all about what that is. Uh, and uh, Kieran Mooney and fly fishing for bass on a professional level. Very interesting. And then I'm going to be joined by Michael Neal. He's making great strides in the world of professional bass fishing. Michael Neal just turned 30 years old. Got a million dollars in prize winnings under his belt. Who knows where this guy's going to end up by the time his career is over? 20, 30 years from now. It's amazing to think about, isn't it? That'll be great. Michael Neal. But first, let me swing it over to Dave Kranz, who's going to bring on his good friend, our good friend, Dan Johnson from St. Croix. Take it away, David. As Steve said, I am Dave Kranz. This is the We Fish ASA podcast, and this segment is brought to you by St. Croix, the best rods on earth, and they bring us weekly Dan Johnston. Welcome back, Dan. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. Boy, uh, you know, we're we're pushing the first week of October here. It's hard to believe. Seems like we were just talking uh, spring and summer patterns and what goes on in the summer, but uh, fall comes and we get that uh, turnover, and I guess that can be good and bad, can't it? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a lake deal, you know, and in some lakes get it big time. My home lake does really hard here in Iowa, um, but it's something we definitely need to be aware of. Understand what it is, why it happens, and most importantly, and why people care on this podcast would be, you know, how does it affect fish? You know, so it. it I, I think what we probably should do is just kind of set it up, um, build into what it is. So you know, in the springtime, you get the water that actually works into summer you get the thermocline we've talked about that before where you get cooler water below warmer water above a very divided line you can actually see on your graph and there's insufficient oxygen below it we talked about strategy there 
when you get into the fall and that water specifically when that water gets down to fifties, um, water actually has a weight to it. And when it gets in the low forties, high thirties, it's heavy and it starts to sink down and it'll mix into that warmer water that's below and it'll mix up, but that's what turnover means. So everything mixes together. I just wanted to explain that to people because it can be really tough. You can go down a couple days, look at your lake and the water's all off color and you're thinking, what the heck? And it's, it's, it's totally real and it definitely affects them. Oh yeah. Yeah. And the oxygen after turnover is the uh, same and throughout the water column. Well, that's right. It makes you you have sufficient water, you have sufficient oxygen throughout the water column, and obviously that's game changing because the whole lake becomes fishable again. But let's also be aware that because it's water temperature that causes it, specifically surface temperature sinking down, then some areas of the lake do it quicker than others. Like if you have if you have uh, real shallow areas where the water will, the surface, uh, like the north end of the lake, for example, the surface temperature warms up or starts to cool down quicker. It's, it's affected more in a shallower area than it is in a super deep basin type area. So it just be, the, the lake turns over, but if you get a giant lake, it can kind of have a delayed effect depending on where you're at. And that's really important to understand. Yeah, and I guess uh, on real, real big lakes, there there could be, uh, parts of it that, uh, you know, lakes that are 100 miles long or 50 miles long, there could be parts of it that are turned over and parts of it are not, correct? That's the whole point I'm trying to make. And, 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 and when we go back to the strategy, when you get a really hard turnover and, you know, super cold nights, wind and rain can all make this even more magnified because it is a water temperature deal. Um, if you get a real hard turnover the strategy for you know we talk about the post-spawn tough bite sometimes that this can be the same thing there can be a three four day up to a week type deal where it's tough the water's off color the temperature has changed radically for the fish all of a sudden the whole lake opens up you know so you know with regard to strategy your whole toolbox comes out you know because you can fish below it now again um but also fish and this is just my experience dave but when, whenever i'm in a really hard turnover in the fall and i'm trying to find them it's kind of like what we do when things change a lot for us as people i think we kind of go to what's comfortable to us it could be like a great big hard target boat dock or it could be a isolated main lake point that's just kind of like this home run where they just live and i think they get real protective to things like that when we're in this period of change and really focus on areas like that but again in terms of baits man it's wide open i mean you can catch them super shallow or super deep because again the whole lake opens up again instead of just that upper layer like it is in the summer yeah, and that makes it even more challenging where you could go and catch them anywhere. So you've you've basically increased the playing field of where they can possibly be. So that's that's good advice about the you know possibly those hard targets or points or you know maybe even uh, deeper creek channels or something like that. That where they're going to head to uh, to winter possibly or where they're going where they're going to be or or I guess where the refrigerator goes, where's the where does the food go? And because the bait end up having to do the same thing as the fish, don't they? Well, there's no question about it. And you know, the first thing you think about, one of the best baits 
right during that scenario is, is a spinnerbait or a bladed jig because you can cover all different water columns with it. Um, it's a great bait to throw during turnover. Both of those are. Um, but yeah, it, it, the bait, you know, the, one of the reasons I mentioned points and, and uh, you know, you mentioned creek channels and so forth. Those are highways where, you know, once we get past this turnover, the fishing is phenomenal. I've, it's, I've said before, it's probably my favorite time of year to fish because they just wolf pack up. You can pull up in a spot and catch 20 where sometimes you catch two. But prior to that, this water is a lot more mixed up. It's a lot dirtier. The fish are going through a big change. So, yeah, it's important to find bait. But even if you do, sometimes they're still in a little bit of a funk. It's just it can be a weird time to fish. Doesn't mean you can't catch them. But you again, at least for me personally, I go to super high percentage areas and fish them very thoroughly. Yeah, and I have a lot of customers who are not hunters that love this time of year better than the spring, the spawn when the pressure is out there because so many of their buddies are out either hunting ducks or doves or geese or deer, and and so they they will tell you the ramps are empty. You got a chance to get out there and you uh, have a good chance of catching the biggest fish of the year in the fall, don't you? Especially post turnover, it gets phenomenal. We've done episodes on this dave multiple episodes on it whether we're talking crappie uh panfish bass walleye anything we've talked about the bait lifting in the fall and they absolutely do they're doing it right now you can see the goals behind the boats and you know we get past this turnover stage those fish will stay very very shallow late into the year and they really start to feed up and it's it's a phenomenal time to throw big baits cover a lot of water catch some of the biggest fish in the lake and and numbers of them so absolutely if i wasn't a bow hunter i'd be fishing a lot more Yep, I would be too. I I have experienced though where um, in the spring I don't seem to be able to get the top water bites till that water gets to be around fifty five. But in the fall, as it starts to drop and even goes below forty five, you know, uh, fifty five into the fifties, high forties, that top water bite for me continues. Have you experienced that also? It's exactly the point we're trying to make. Those post turnover late into the fall and the bait lift in the water column. And we've talked about this on cropping. We've talked about it on bass. So what they'll do, the fact those, the fact the bait is lifted is why that's happening. It's got everything to do with that. And you can see it because you can see the shad up on the surface on our reservoirs really late into the year. And even as they start to drop down, those big fish will still stay shallow because those rocks stay warm. Um, so it absolutely 100% degree, uh, agree. I know we've talked about episodes before of us catching big bass on topwaters down in snowstorms in Missouri. I mean, as long as you've got, you know, relatively warm water temperatures still, and I would call 50s relatively warm for sure for a topwater in the fall. Absolutely. Now, normally you get less moisture in the late summer, fall, early fall, and into the fall. Um, and, and many times, so reservoirs especially, and, and lakes, the, the water stops dropping, this, or starts dropping, and you can lose, you know, six, eight inches a foot. Is that a factor with turnover? Do you have to change anything with dropping water? Well, with the, it doesn't. It's not really going to drop. By, a lot of reservoirs, to be honest with you, Dave, they'll bring them up in the fall for duck hunters. Okay. Is what I normally experience. Yeah. So I don't. I don't get into that a whole lot in terms of a big factor. But the one thing I wouldn't want 
is water moving up or down and in the turnover stage? That would be a whole nother card to play. But generally speaking in the fall, at least most of the places that I fish, they don't drop the bottom out of it. That's more of a late summer deal. They'll bring it up in the fall for, for you know, big public reservoirs for waterfowl hunting. And even some of the, some of the lakes are pretty well regulated. But again, it goes back to the fact that it's, there's a, there's a drastic water clarity change more than level change with the turnover. And that's the, that's the, the million dollar question of how do we figure that one out? Because not only do the fish not see the bait very good for about a week, but secondly, the, the oxygen, again, as we've mentioned, has opened up for the whole lake. So they can't see it as good, but they can go anywhere now. So it's, it makes it even, it, it's even another uh, challenging element to it. So throw a bait that moves water that they can find, fish real, um, comfortable areas for fish and fishing very thoroughly and then fish something that you can work a variety of water columns with and i usually start shallow there you go and you bring up a good point about the uh, uh duck hunters in the fall and i and then the guys that don't hunt and only fish you remember you there's regulations for that and you need to give those guys a pretty wide berth i mean you got to remember they're they're shooting guns at ducks and you don't want to get sprayed with pellets or bb's and you don't want to affect the the weeks that they have uh, out there or the days that they have out there if they're in a draw area so that that's a good point too and i think uh if we're all respectful of each other for our hunting and fishing we'll all get to uh enjoy what's out there yeah i've been on both sides of that i've i've looked at ass guys when i'm duck hunting and been upset then i've gone in and flipped a duck blind with nobody's in it and caught 10 pounds off it too so those permanent blinds out of the water in the southern part of the mississippi river can be unbelievable for the record but yeah i know you're right definitely respect it and it's uh it's really important to you know all of us to respect what we're doing out there for sure absolutely uh i thank you again for being on the podcast and look forward to talking to you next week always my pleasure dave thanks that was dan johnston i am dave cran steve sarley is remote and this segment of the we fish asa podcast was brought to you by st croix the best rods on earth we will be right back Rule your water. Rule it with a St. Croix rod. Whether you take to the lake, wade the rivers, or cast from shore, St. Croix provides responsive performance, ensuring your success below every surface. With a St. Croix rod in hand, you're a part of a celebrated tradition that has spanned 70 years. Touch, power, and control are right at your fingertips and extend to you the finest fishing experience on the planet. St. Croix, the best rods on earth. The outdoors is more than just a profession for us here at Big Rock Sports. As avid anglers, hunters, and outdoor enthusiasts, it's our passion. So advocating on behalf of the outdoor sporting goods industry is a top priority for us. Big Rock Sports is proud to serve as the voice and advocate of outdoor sporting goods retailers across the nation. Big Rock Sports works tirelessly to protect our fisheries and anglers' rights. Big Rock Sports, we are here for you. I'm professional angler Kevin Van Dam, and people always ask me, what's the best and easiest way to catch fish? Well, that's simple. Keep our waterways clean and free of litter. You know, tossing your worn out lures in the lake is not a winning move. Pitch them in the trash. Do your part and join me. Visit KeepAmericaFishing.org and pledge to pitch it. 
Welcome back to the We Fish ASA podcast. I am Dave Cran. Steve Starley is remote, and this segment is brought to you by Calcutta, an outdoor company that builds gear and apparel for those with a passion for the outdoors. And I always like to say the guests that I get to interview on this segment have a passion for the outdoors, and our next guest certainly does in a different way. I went to the Major League Fishing uh, Big Five tournament sponsored by Toyota out to the Potomac River, and uh, my co-angler, uh, happened to be a fly fisherman, so I had a co-angler, first time that I've seen one on the circuit doing this. This is my fourth year on the uh, Major League Fishing Big Five Toyota Series, and I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Kieran Mooney. Welcome back. Well, well, welcome to the podcast, Kieran. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So you, nice you, show. I, that's awesome. I'm glad to have you here because we haven't ever had a co-angler that is a fly fisherman on, on board. And, uh, you know, give us a little background on yourself of how you got into fly fishing. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up, started fishing at a wee young lad at five years old, uh, that took me fishing. I got addicted, caught the bug. And, uh, so from about five till, you know, mid high school years, I spin fished. I was a spin fisherman and I would fish for a variety of species, but bass and especially bass. But, uh, and I enjoyed that very much and just like anyone else. But then <clears throat> my father gave me a fly fishing outfit at the age of 16 and I didn't have any interest in it, but, uh, I tried it and very quickly became addicted. And so for a few years after that, I would do dabble at both. I would mix in fly fishing with my regular spin fishing outings and do both, you know, one time do one, one the other. But then, uh, about in my college year, I was in the trout fishing environment in North Carolina, and it was a natural time where I, I transitioned over to fly fishing, and since then, it's basically nothing, been nothing but fly fishing since then. I've been a purist, if you will, fly fisherman since then. Yeah, and, and obviously uh, watching and paying attention while we were fishing the tournament together, you had uh, fished with somebody else day one, and then they switch over for the listeners that don't know. The next day, the co-angler fishes with a different pro, and, and uh, you're a very experienced fly fisherman. And what do you consider your, your level? I mean, you, did you say you had taught fly fishing also? Yeah, uh, hard to say how it, what I, you know, advanced, I guess. Um you know, I'm not the best in the world, but I'm not the worst. I say that I'm not the best fish fly fish in the world, but no one gets more excited or is more passionate about it or has more genuine uh, love and uh, love for it and uh, excitement and gets as excited about it. So, yeah, I guess I'd be in that, you know, somewhere in that advanced uh, range of experience. And uh, you asked my experience, you know, I've done a decent bit of guiding uh, over the years and also giving two-hour fly fishing lessons. Uh, where it's basically just teaching people how to fly fish from uh, from scratch without actually never having picked up a fly rod before. And so I've done that in Alaska, in Alaska, North Carolina over the past, uh, yeah, over, over a decade. So that's, that's kind of my uh, experience set there. Excellent. Yeah. And I noticed right away that you were experienced being able to uh, maneuver that fly out to uh, some of those casts. Yeah, I think I asked you how far you were out on some of them, some of them 60 feet or more, correct? Right, yeah. So, uh, you know, I can cast probably with a stiff enough fly rod up to maybe 80, 90 feet. Uh, you can only cast as long, without being too technical, you can only cast as long as the length of the fly line that you're throwing. So I can probably cast, you know, which are basically up to 90, 100 feet tough. So I can probably cast uh, 90 feet, but uh, it's really only necessary for, uh, for a lot of fly fishing, fly fishing applications for the average angler to cast maybe 15 to 40 feet uh it's great to be able to cast long distances but it's not imperative to be able to be successful in uh effective fly fishermen 
more important to put uh, put that that bait where the fish are at or where you've seen one come up and rise and we we had that experience we saw quite a few of them come up and um, but the uh, they weren't all bass we had white bass or stripers we had different fish there too but uh, so so this was your first time and out of the back of a boat in a bass tournament with a fly rod Uh, how would you rate the experience what did what did you think of how it went and did it go the way you thought it might yeah, I guess I'd say uh, it was a good experience overall. It was very interesting and eye-opening, and uh, I've seen shows, you know, back in uh, back in my youth, and especially moving forward. And since then, I've seen shows on bass shows on TV, uh, shows on you know bass tournaments on TV, but never been ex- immersed in one. So it was a uh, it was very interesting experience. Uh, it was a lot of activity. Um, I guess it didn't go as quite like I thought. You know, I had visions of. Uh, you know, filling the having live wall with long bass and having the calling being my main problem, but I that was really not my problem. But um, you know, without having that much success, really. But um, yeah, so um, so I guess it was uh, a little bit different. My expectations were a little bit different than my expectations. What the outcome was as far as the, uh, the productivity of it. But uh, I mean, it was a great experience seeing how the pros operate. And to see the uh, hustle and bustle of the bass tournament, and to see all the moving parts, and all the you know all the all the small moving parts, and everything that adds up to uh, what that everything that goes into a bass tournament from the from the take from the launch, you know, for the launch at the beginning, uh, checking in the boats, the fishing itself, and then the way, and it's just uh, you know there's a, there's a there's a lot to it, and there's there's a lot of, there's a lot of exciting aspects of it. Yeah, it is exciting and it is fun. And um, now, now there's other fly guys that I mean, I, I believe uh, day one on the uh, Major League Fishing page for the Toyota Series, uh, they had mentioned that there was a co-angler fishing with a fly rod. You probably opened some eyes to some other fly fishermen. Are there recommendations you would make to other anglers that are fly fishermen that would possibly want to try this? Uh, yeah, I would say to keep your uh, be realistic about it, uh, keep an open mind. And uh, know that you're going to have to you're going to have to throw a, a wide variety of flies and maybe in, in different kinds of settings as far as depth and the water column and speed, etc. Maybe even, maybe even rod weights to uh, to try to emulate what the pros are doing. So just know that there's I think that fly fishermen know this in general, but there are some there are some even though I love fly fishing and I, I'm happy to take on and tackle the challenges inherent in it. Um, there are some things that uh, that the pros do that is very difficult for the fly fisherman to emulate. So I'd say just keep an open mind and go through your progression of flies and uh, try to observe what the pros are doing and try to you know match match that try to match what they're doing to the best of your ability. But know that uh, they have certain there are certain things they can do that they can do that you were to have a hard hard time duplicating exactly. Yeah, that's good advice. And and in fairness, uh, we many of us had three, four, five days of practice, which on this tournament on the Potomac River was terrible. The the the, the results that I heard out of practice were just brutal. And 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 they were. This was not a real good tournament for the numbers of fish being caught by any means. As a matter of fact, the last day in the top ten pros that were there there was one pro that had one keeper in the last day and one pro that had zero i don't know if you had noticed that but uh it was not an easy tournament to catch a limit of five fish or even to catch two three or four so it it, it was a, a a tough uh tournament you said selection of flies um you you went through quite a few different ones if i can you know remember probably eight eight to ten eight to twelve different selections you had tried and and trying to match the water that that 
the pro has you in. The, the, the people have to understand a co-angler generally doesn't have practice days unless he's paired up with a co that he can go and practice with, uh, and then he gets paired with different pros for the tournament. But but you have to fish waters that you don't know where you're going to. Was, was that uh, part of the challenge for you? Yeah, definitely. I'd say so. Uh, the fact that I hadn't fished the Potomac before and didn't know the layout and didn't know the kind of didn't know the uh, the the layout of the grass beds and how they uh, you know relative to the bottom depth and where the holes were and so you kind of had to uh, kind of play it by ear and read the water to kind of know where you're casting and hoping that you're coming through clear water. Um, yeah, that it, it was definitely a, it was definitely a challenge. That was challenging, and that was something new. But, um, but you know, I'd say if you're, again, you, if you use the pro to your advantage and uh, try to see what they're doing, try to match what they're doing as far as, you know, presentation, retrieve, lure, try to match your flies, you know, all their all the uh, techniques they're employing and strategy, try to, try to mimic that. And then you could also use the back depth finder as a constant remind, reminder of, of your depth. Uh, but, yeah, you know, like just like pros, I mean, all uh, pros experience. Um, there's a wide swath of different kind of bass water in the country, and with all different kind of terrain and all different kinds of water clarity. And so, um, you know, the Potomac is every, every every water has its own has its own uh, characteristics and its own traits that make it uh, make it fish a certain way. So yeah, you definitely have to deal with that. Yeah, and besides that, it's tidal, so that looking at that back right. depth finder, there are some pros that turn that back depth finder off. I never do that. I leave it on because many times we're moving and going to different places and to reset it and get it turned on and fishing waters that, you know, are different to us, you know, may end up fishing something that you don't know. But what the tidal uh, factor, you had done some of that in either fresh or salt water before? Oh, yeah, I have. Not necessarily for bass, my recollection, but, uh, you know, I've done, but I've done, fishing in, on the coast for redfish and albacore and, and saltwater species that have a tidal influence, yeah. Yeah, and, and so that, that wasn't, a, wasn't a big factor, but we still had to play it, and I had to put the boat in a position so that as the water dropped, we're out farther, and as it comes in, you go go back. But, you know, you had said you had caught some uh, uh, pretty big fish in North Carolina on uh, one or two of the popping bugs type bugs you, you were throwing. And, you know, tell the listeners about the, I mean, I think you said you had one that was in the eight-pound range. Yeah, so I've caught, you know, I've, I've caught over 2,000 largemouth on the fly, and uh, largemouth bass on the fly, yeah, and I've caught, I think, a dozen, a dozen over five pounds. So, you know, my biggest is 8.8, and so I've caught, it's, like I said, a, a dozen five-plus, and several of them have been on topwater offerings and other subsurface. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've done, but, the, yeah, that, that marquee fish, at 8.8, biggest I've landed, that was on a, uh, a topwater fly called the Wiggle Minnow, which is uh, quite 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 a deadly topwater fly and uh yeah that's that's the most memorable the biggest bass that i personally personally brought to hand on a fly rod yep which are which are a dandy bass anywhere in the country and uh and and that's neat that you know i had a friend of mine say how big of bass can you land on a fly rod i said well you you know the rod is your drag and you know that they fight it you can tire them out and i said i think as big a bass as you can on any equipment wouldn't you agree well yeah i mean the rod is a drag, but the, 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 the reels have very sensitive drags, and you don't really necessarily need an incredible drag for largemouth bass fishing just because of their size and because they don't pull as hard as, you know, some a lot of other fish that are known for their uh, that are known for their speed and for their strength. But, yeah, if you have the right equipment, I mean, you could land potentially a world record bass as long as, as kind of you're alluding to, as long as you have heavy enough line, 
as you, and you know how to fight fish and the rod is adequate and the reel you know can take the uh, scourge of the bass when it runs and any size bass that exists in, in a watershed can be can be caught and uh, can be caught on a fly rod there's no doubt about it yeah and, and uh and so that, oh go ahead that's, that's kind of a misconception some people have is that there's limitations on the fly as far as the, the species you can fish for and as far as the size that you can land but i mean you can catch out uh, this is getting out of bass fishing around for a second but you know Fly, people catch tarpon, for example, up to 200 pounds plus on a fly rod, just as an example. So as long as your gear is adequate and strong enough to, to match the quarry, I mean, you can catch really big fish on a fly rod. So it's really it's really not, not a limiting factor. The biggest limiting factor is depth. That's one big thing. If the fish are too deep, it becomes at some point where it's not practical and you really just can't get line control and you can't really have effective fishing on the fly. So... So, so the kind of water and where the fish are and the depth are really uh, more of a consideration than the, si- the size of the fish. So don't let fly fishermen who think that uh, you know they can't catch big bass on a fly. That's definitely a fallacy. There's uh, been been you know huge bass caught um, on fly rods. No doubt. And yep. Yep, no doubt. Those that that's a phenomenal confidence to get one over eight or eight pounder range, and and that's great. But uh, we are out of time. But I definitely appreciate you being on. Uh, and uh, you know what? I would look forward to hopefully seeing you at another uh, Major League Fishing Toyota event, and 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 uh, seeing how you do. Okay, thanks very much. Alrighty, thank you. That was Kieran Mooney. Uh, this is the We Fish ASA podcast, and this segment was brought to you by Calcutta, an outdoor company that builds gear and apparel for those with a passion for the outdoors. I am Dave Cran, Steve Sarley is remote. We will be right back after these messages. The outdoors is more than just a profession for us here at Big Rock Sports. As avid anglers, hunters, and outdoor enthusiasts, it's our passion. So advocating on behalf of the outdoor sporting goods industry is a top priority for us. Big Rock Sports is proud to serve as the voice and advocate of outdoor sporting goods retailers across the nation. Big Rock Sports works tirelessly to protect our fisheries and anglers' rights. Big Rock Sports, we are here for you. Calcutta, we're an outdoor coastal trading company that builds gear and apparel for those with a passion for the outdoors. Born in the back of a Florida bait and tackle shop, Calcutta was created with a rebellious spirit and a goal to offer hardworking outdoor products at a reasonable price. Calcutta builds the products that fit your lifestyle. We're on a mission to help you reclaim your free time and to declare mutiny on the mundane. Depend on Calcutta gear and apparel. Bass anglers have heard it all when it comes to manufacturers having the best casting reel. Well, Daiwa can back it up with the Tatula SV. The Tatula SV has three key features that make it the most versatile casting reel on the market today. The SV spool is a lightweight aluminum spool allowing for long control light lure casting. MAG4Z gives you the option to set a precise casting range no matter what lure or wind situation. The Daiwa T-Wing system reduces line angle and friction when casting. Distance, control, and finesse like no other reel on the market. Tatula, the ultimate finesse long cast system designed by Daiwa. Welcome back to We Fish ASA. I am Steve Sarley. Dave Kranz is my partner, but he's not here. He is remote. We Fish ASA is brought to you by the proud industry members of the American Sport Fishing Association. Please help to ensure the future of fishing by visiting keepamericafishing.org. 
And if you're an industry professional, please consider joining the American Sport Fishing Association by visiting asafishing.org. Uh, you know, you talk about the future of fishing. Uh, one of the ways that uh, that's going to get done is by bringing in young superstars into the sport. And, and we are in a period where that is happening. And it just uh, happened again in the past week or so. One of the best fishermen out there, most consistent fisherman, uh, is our next guest. And he just won his first big-time tournament on the uh, Major League Fishing Bass Pro Tour circuit. Cashed a big check, and he did it in uh, incredible style. Please welcome Mr. Michael Neal. Hey, Michael, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Glad to be on here. Hey, glad, glad, glad to have you. Absolutely glad to have you. I said uh, you are one of the best-kept secrets in fishing. I, how old are you now? Are you 27? I'm 30. I just turned 30 a couple weeks ago. Oh, well, you're, you're over to hell. We'll skip that whole subject about being a young angler. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding with you, Michael. I'm kidding with you. 30, 30 is young. You're over a million dollars in winning at 30 years old. I can't imagine what's going to be going on in your bank account when you're hitting the age of, say, a Skeet Reese or whatever. You got a lot of fishing in front of you. You got a lot of checks for cash. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I feel like I still got another, you know, solid 20 years or so. Um, but I mean, that, yeah, a million dollars on paper, but that doesn't include everything it took to get to this point and the entry fees and all the hotel costs and expenses and everything, but uh, it sure sounds like a good number anyways. Sure, it, it sure does. It sure does. If you weren't fishing professionally in Major League Fishing, what would you be doing? Uh, I actually went to college um, at Bryan College right here in town in Dayton, and uh, I got a computer science degree. And at the time, I, I was pretty sure that I wanted to fish, or I was sure I wanted to, and I was going to try and make a career out of it. But I went ahead and got a degree uh, in college or in uh, computer science just to make sure I always had something to fall back on. And I mean, computers are just becoming more and more of our lives every day, whether we like it or not. And uh, so I'd be doing something with that. It'd be a lot different than being out on the lake on a boat. I'd be behind the computer somewhere, but uh, that's probably what I'd be doing. You know, it, it's it's funny. We're so in fishing. We are so tied in the computers uh, and electronics. It, it, it's amazing. So maybe even fishing wise, that helps you. I can't remember who we had on. We had on one of the old pros. He said, "I can't believe that uh, if you would have told me ten years ago, I, I'd be running my boat with five electronic devices on it. I would have told you you were crazy." Yeah, and it's, uh, like you said, it's just becoming more and more of a part of it, and I feel like that uh, that technology computer background that I have allows me to work through the electronics and the settings and, and figure things out a little bit faster than uh, maybe the average person can, but I mean, they're all so, they're so dialed in now, uh, almost straight out of the box, but once you get them set like you want to, you don't ever have to touch them again, just you know, change between screens, whether you want a chart or, or whatever kind of imaging you want. But, uh, yeah, it's it's crazy where technology's come just in my time of fishing and uh, no telling what it'll be doing in another 10 years. No, no kidding. That is absolutely, absolutely amazing uh, that this has happened to, to the point where you, you got some people saying that 
all this uh, modern equipment, and, is, and particularly electronic equipment, is making it too easy to catch fish. Uh, that's got to burn you when you hear something like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would agree with that in some instances, but um, in some instances, no. Like, I mean, crappie fishing or bluegill fishing or something like that, it makes it so easy. But it, with bass fishing, a lot of times, um, you've still got to figure out ways to trigger those fish. And it's just kind of, I kind of view it like the umbrella rig or the Alabama rig. And it unlocked a lot of new ways for us to catch fish, especially those suspended fish that are out chasing bait uh, just over kind of nothing or over super deep water or, or not following any contours, not relating to the bottom. It's opened those doors, but then you've still got to figure out what it takes to catch them, what it makes those, what it takes to get those fish to react. And, uh, there's a lot of fish that you'll see that you never can catch. And that gets, that's when it gets personal. It's really, a, <laughs> a, what do I have to do to, to trick you, to beat you uh, at your own game? Excellent. Uh, man, it's taken in so many different directions. Uh, and I, I agree with you. Interesting, we had, uh, I interviewed Wally Marshall, Mr. Crappie, last week. They got that big uh, uh, $250,000 crappie tournament going on down in Louisiana. And he said the same thing. He said with the panoptics and some of the new uh, revolution in electronics, he said it's just making it too it's making it too easy to catch crappie. Uh, we're getting bigger crappies, bigger bags than ever before. Uh, you used to be able to catch crappie. Now you can actually go out and with the electronics target specific uh, target specifically bigger fish which we weren't getting before. And, and I look at this, and uh, uh, it's interesting with the bass fishing because that's important too, other than the fact that when we're talking major league fishing, we're not looking for the five biggest of the day. We're looking for the most fish over two pounds and uh, being able to locate those numbers and uh, you know, use the electronics to rule out the real dinky fish is a big benefit. Even though it's not the same as catching crappies, it does make it a little bit easier. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, like you said, we're out there having to catch as many as we can physically catch in a day. And just knowing that you're around the fish, um, something that I think is a little bit different with the crappie fish, and they don't run their range out near as far. Uh, they do a lot of vertical jigging and, and using, you know, really long rods and things. And, and that helps them see, that helps them differentiate in the size of the fish. Now, I can look at mine and tell you know, if it's a, a big drum or catfish or something like that. But most of the time, if it's a bass between, you know, two and five pounds, I, I can't really tell that much difference all the time. Um, now, if it's a single fish, it's a little bit easier. And like I said, if you've got your range not, not run out as far, you can tell a little bit different. But just the way that they run and set up their units versus a bass guy is a little bit different too. But like I said, just knowing you're around the fish, and having the confidence that you're in the right area is is more um, beneficial to me than actually seeing exactly where to cast and seeing how to catch those fish, you know, how make, to make them react. Makes makes a lot of sense. Makes a real lot of sense. Well, it basically, uh, and it's, it's certainly not basic at all. You you won the Stage Seven Major League Fishing Bass Pro Tour tournament on Lake Saint Clair. Uh, a smallmouth fishery, which is not your forte, but you wouldn't know it from your totals because you ended up capping off this tournament uh, catching uh, uh, 58 smallies, totaling a, over 168 pounds. Yeah, that's right. We're talking 
a three-pound average fish, 58 smallies. You, you were catching these things constantly all day long. Uh, it, it, it's a remarkable tournament. Uh, and uh, w when did you get the feeling that you were going to win this thing? After the first day of competition. Um, after practice, I didn't really have that great of a feeling about it. I just had one area that I, I caught uh, three or four fish in in about 30 minutes, and then I, that was all I had. So I, I started noticing that the fish were on little differences, whether it was a high spot or a big rock or it was a huge grass flat. And, I mean, just like any kind of fish, if you find something different, that's a high percentage area where they're going to hang out. So I idled around for 45 minutes or an hour uh, looking for those differences and marking them on my electronics. And like I said, I, I doubled on the crankbait in practice, so I knew there was a lot of fish in that area, but I didn't know the true potential. And then when I went there on day one and just started blistering them, uh, that was when I, it clicked in my head that the fish were there to win. I mean, you could see them idling. You could see them on your, on your live scope. You could see them on the 360. You could see them uh, when you catch one, you'd see eight or ten chase it to the boat. I mean, it was just unbelievable how many fish were there and that was when it really set in when I, I was leading day one. I felt like I could go out on day two, catch enough to win that round, and go straight for the championship. And I felt like I had a, as good a shot as anybody. You know, people that don't fish for smallmouth, and, and obviously largemouth is the is the main target for most of the country. Uh, smallmouth are certainly exciting, and and they don't get as big as they don't get as big as largemouth. Uh, but but they fight like crazy. They, they don't want to come to the boat at all. Once they see that boat, they turn into real irritating little creatures because now they want to get in the air and shake that hook out and and and, and do all that. But uh, you know, smallmouth are difficult. And you mentioned one thing, and and I, it always uh, makes me laugh that they follow. Uh, you'll have a smallmouth on, you're reeling it in, and all of a sudden you see a little school, one, two, five of them following that fish to the boat isn't that the most aggravating thing in fishing you've ever seen it is and they're they're just so competitive they're just so much uh they have such a different nature than largemouth largemouth are just lethargic and they're just going to bite whatever gets in front of them with the smallmouth will just chase anything and just kind of cat and mouse things i don't think that they always intend on eating whatever as much as they just want to play with it and, and see what it is they're much more visual feeders and when there's something like that and one gets excited and bites your bait, I mean, if you're throwing a drop shot, they'll, they'll come up and bite the weight off, uh, just anything. You catch two on a, on a treble hook bait, one on the front, one on the back, where they try to take it out of the other one's mouth. They're just super, super competitive and uh, super wild. I mean, like you said, you're throwing light line a lot of times. I mean, I caught them on a drop shot with seven-pound line and a crankbait with 12-pound line, so I wasn't using anything real big. And, you have to really play those fish out and just take your time with them, but you gotta you gotta be finessy to get them to bite because they are such a visual feeding fish. Yeah, because it's it's certainly interesting. You know, over the years we've watched uh, uh, Major League Fishing, Bassmaster, everybody these these great pros, and, and you hook a largemouth and it's a race to get it to the boat. Uh, you're cranking like all get out and then whoop, over the side, flipping it in so quickly, which obviously you guys handle those fish a little bit more gently. Uh, but they, they don't play the same way as largemouth. You try horsing those things in in record time, you're, you're going to find a, a empty an empty hook by the time you get it back in. 
Yeah, and and I mean, just like their name says, smallmouth. Most of the time, like on treble hook baits, especially, you're not going to have them totally hooked in the mouth. You might have one hook, but most of them are going to be on the side. And if you just put too much pressure on them, you're you're going to lose them. So yeah, like you said, it's a lot different as far as the tackle and and the fighting techniques and everything on getting those fish into the boat. When every fish counts, like in the Bass Pro Tour. You don't want to lose any, and with smallmouth, it's going to happen no matter how perfect your setup is, how sharp your hooks are. If you've got the perfect rod, perfect bend, and everything, there's just things are going to happen with them. They're just so crazy. Excellent, excellent. I need to take a quick break. Uh, let our sponsors have a word. We'll let your sponsors have a word when we come back. We are on the line with Michael Neal. They call him the real deal. I guess that makes a lot of sense. Like lucky, lucky to have a name that fits so well like that. The real deal, Michael Neal. He is the Tackle Warehouse Pro Circuit Angler of the Year and the winner of $100,000 in Stage 7 of the Major League Fishing Bass Pro Tour. Just won a big event at Lake St. Clair. Set a couple of records. We'll talk a little bit more about that with Michael Neal. I'm Steve Sarley. This is We Fish ASA. We'll be right back. For most anglers, the unexpected is expected. But what you can do is take matters into the seat of your, well, shorts. Meet Aftco's Overboard Shorts, winner of the iCast Best in Category for Technical Clothing. Built with a 100% submersible pocket that keeps the unexpected dry dock for the other guy. Overboard keeps the good times rolling and your valuables safe for the next adventure. Overboard Shorts from Aftco. Learn more at aftco.com slash overboard. Bass anglers have heard it all when it comes to manufacturers having the best casting rail. Well, Daiwa can back it up with the Tatula SV. The Tatula SV has three key features that make it the most versatile casting reel on the market today. The SV spool is a lightweight aluminum spool allowing for long control light lure casting. MAG4Z gives you the option to set a precise casting range no matter what lure or wind situation. The Daiwa T-Wing system reduces line angle and friction when casting. Distance, control, and finesse like no other reel on the market. Tatula, the ultimate finesse long cast system designed by Daiwa. The St. Croix story has evolved over 70 years. With gritty determination, St. Croix built the most advanced fishing rod facility in the world. And with it, a world-class brand that has earned the respect and admiration of anglers around the planet. We will continue to challenge ourselves, our employees, and our partners to be the best every day. We're proud to celebrate 70 years of passion and commitment to making the best rods on earth, St. Croix. Welcome back to We Fish ASA. I'm Steve Surley. My partner Dave Kranz is remote. We Fish ASA is brought to you by the proud industry members of the American Sport Fishing Association. Don't forget to check us out on social media, places like Facebook. We're certainly easy enough to find. And when you locate us, please like us, follow us, share us through all that cool social media stuff that helps us out. We thank you all for your support. We thank Michael Neal for being with us. He just won the, uh, in the in the same week, he was awarded the Tackle Warehouse Pro Circuit Angler of the Year title. And he won stage seven of the uh, Bass Pro Tour for Major League Fishing on Lake St. Clair. So, Michael Neal, when did you decide to turn professional? You, you know, although you're 30 years old, it seems like you've been doing this forever. 
I started in 2012. Um, I actually didn't work my way all the way up through the ranks. At the time, you could, uh, for the FLW Tour, if you had a Ranger boat, you could just pay your money and get in. And in 2011, I won three BFLs in the same year. So I saved that money up and uh, started fishing the Tour the following year in 2012. Stuck with it through uh, 2018. Then when the Bass Pro Tour started in 2019, went to that. And then we had the opportunity to fish both the Bass Pro Tour and the Pro Circuit this year and really enjoyed fishing both formats, the five fish format and the every fish counts. Uh, they're they're a lot different, but they're both still really fun. So sure. It's kind of kind of nice to have a, a change of pace every once in a while and go back and forth between formats. I was uh, amazed reading about, uh, well, first of all, I was amazed reading about this tournament at uh, Lake St. Clair that you won because uh, I said you caught 58 smallmouth bass in the last day, 168 pounds plus. You, you broke the record for the heaviest one-day weight catching fish. Uh, you, you caught more fish that day than most anglers catch in an open water season. Uh, that is absolutely amazing that you can do that in one day. And you finished over 76 pounds ahead of second place. Wasn't even close. You could have stopped fishing at 11 o'clock in the morning and just uh, laid back, uh, had a beverage, and gotten a suntan and still cruised in with a win. Uh, you made it look too easy. It was it was one of those things that that's a once-in-a-lifetime find, I think. I mean, I, I've found a lot of big schools of fish, but nothing even comes close to comparing to that. And the fish were in an area that was literally three-quarters of a mile long. And while there, you couldn't catch one every single cast while going through that area, but that was the that was what I had marked from the the furthest point I caught them on one end to the furthest point on the other was three quarters of a mile, and, and there was literally thousands of fish there. And there's no way that I mean I've never seen anything like that in my life. Like I said, almost every time you catch one, you'd see six, eight, ten come up with it and just <laughs> catch them every cast for six or eight casts in a row before you bust the school up. I mean, it was just absolutely crazy. And I wish I could say that I knew for sure I'd find another school like that in my life, but that's going to be hard to believe. Excellent. Absolutely. Excellent. Hey, man, uh, you know, a lot of times when you're talking fishing, you'll say, you know, somebody say, give me a spot. Well, a, a spot is pretty generic, and it, it's nice to be told a spot gives you an idea where to go. But when you talk to people that are professional, serious fishermen, they'll say it's not getting a spot. It's figuring out the spot on the spot. Uh, that it, it may be a hump, okay? And uh, it's a good spot, but you've got to find the spot on the spot. There might be a little cut or a rock or something, and, and, and you got to drill it down to find the spot on the spot. You're talking about your spot was three-quarters of a mile. Uh, how did you locate the spots on the spot, or did you need to find that out? Yeah, I mean, to catch them as, as quickly as I did, I think uh, that is attributed to the time that I spent idling in practice. And then on day two of the tournament, when I knew I'd won the round and was going to get the automatic burst to the championship round, I spent probably two hours that day idling as well, and I, I could expand further on the area. So it's just like, to me, if you're if you're large enough fishing and you've got uh, a big cove that's got 30 docks in it, or you've got another cove that's got three in it, 
well, there's going to be fish in both coves, yeah. but they're going to be easier to catch in the one that's got three because those are going to be more higher percentage areas. And that's what I was able to do in that spot was to find pretty much every single high percentage area and just troll from one to the next and just make a couple casts. And if they were there, they'd show themselves pretty quickly. You'd catch one. If not, go on to the next one and just, just keep making a, a big rotation through all those higher percentages. Yes, if I could have just floated through there and, and didn't uh, use my sonar and stuff to find those differences, I would have caught a lot of fish. Don't know that I could have caught enough to win, but I still would have caught fish. So that was definitely one of those finding the spots within the spot. That is interesting, Michael Neal. Uh, you had said earlier, uh, you, you know where they're there and you got to figure out what they want, what they're looking for. You did not catch your fish on one particular technique. Uh, you were you were drop shotting, you were crankbaiting a, a number of different ways to fish. And I, I want to know what goes through your head on, on changing techniques because if you're drop shotting and all of a sudden you stop catching fish or you like to get a little bit bigger fish, you've got options. You can go with a bigger, bigger or smaller piece of plastic, or you can switch colors or whatever and say maybe you're looking for a purple rather than a brown. So you've got different things. You've got different things to do, and you can tell me when you decide to change on that, but. You're going also, you know what, the, the, I, I'm done using this drop shot. I'm going to put on a crankbait. What what goes through your head and makes you think of doing something like that? A lot of it was just the conditions. If it was, if there was a little bit of chop on the water, they would bite the jerkbait or the crankbait a lot better. Um, maybe not better than the drop shot, but you could just cover a lot more water. And, and I would much rather cast and wind something as to have to drag it. But there was times where it would be just dead, slick, calm and they wouldn't bite those moving baits. So that's when I would rely more on the drop shot, and I'd have to fish it just super, super slow, basically just, I mean, dragging it at a crawl. A lot of times with smallmouth, you can throw it out there, and they'll chase over to it and bite it, but these, they didn't want to act that way. And I, I would change up, you know, just like anytime you find a school, if you catch them on moving baits, then you change up, throw something slower, you're going to catch a couple more. But that was really the extent of what I was going to do. And I, I had probably... 80 different places marked that had fish on them up there. So I wouldn't spend a lot of time on one place after they quit biting and slowed down. I would just go ahead and go to the next one. And then I would come back and let those fish regroup, come back and catch them again later, different ones uh, within that school. But yeah, I could have changed colors more. I could have changed uh, weights more or baits more, sizes. There was a lot of things I could have done differently to, if I didn't have as many places marked. But I was fortunate enough to have that to where I could just keep making a rotation and let those fish regroup within themselves. It's funny you said you'd rather be uh, you'd rather be chucking and, and reeling back in than, than drifting or, or doing a slower finesse thing. And, and it's funny because uh, you know uh, those of us with kids, you take your kids fishing, and uh, you tell them you got to be patient. Fishing is patience, which which I totally I don't believe in. There's nothing turns a kid off more than having to sit and be quiet and, and, and not do anything. They'd rather catch fish. They'd rather have action. But, you know, you're know, you telling these kids, patience, patience. Now, you take you, 30-year-old 30, 30 Michael Neal, Major League Fishing Pro, and to catch fish, you got to go to a, a method that you don't particularly like, and you got to be patient. 
Oh, my God, that's bringing you back to your youth, to the days when you didn't like hearing your dad say that, and now you got to do it to yourself. Does that make you nuts? Not really. I mean, it, I've gotten early in my career, I didn't want to do that stuff. I didn't want to finesse fish. I didn't like light line. I didn't grow up using it. But as my career has advanced, I've figured out you got to do what you got to do to catch fish and cash checks. And I, I really, anymore, there's not a technique that I hate. I mean, there's some that I, of course, I like more than others. I'd rather use, you know, 20 pound line and a big rod and, and a stout hook and just winch on fish and get them in the boat. But if I feel just as comfortable doing that as I do with a spinning rod and six pound line in my hands. So uh, it, it, I feel like there's a, a better way all the time to catch them, maybe that you could do a little bit more or something you like, but I'll do whatever it takes anymore and not complain too bad about it. Excellent, excellent. Uh, I, I, I want you to throw a shout out to our friends at Big Bite Baits, uh, who are one of our sponsors. Just heard a Big Bite commercial in between uh, the segments of our interview. Uh, how important to your win was Big Bite? I caught a lot of fish on the uh, on the Smalley Smasher. It's a, a smaller drop shot bait, and uh, that was really the only plastics I threw was a drop shot. So that's a great deal. They've got a new uh, plastic formula coming out that's going to be a little bit different than what they've got now, so everybody needs to be looking out for that. And uh, it's probably going to get you a few extra bites. That's about all I can say about it right now till they release it, but it's going to be something special to look forward to. A few extra bites is, is what it's all about. I did see something uh, in your uh, post-tournament interview that, that uh, really struck me. Uh, you gave uh, Aaron Martins uh, uh, some credit for uh, bait design. Yeah, it was his hook, uh, the Gabagatsu G Finesse treble hook. He designed that, and uh, most people know. I mean, he's having a hard time right now, health wise, but and he wasn't able to be at that event. And so it, it was kind of bittersweet to be able to uh, catch a lot of my fish on the crankbait with those hooks on it, uh, just knowing that he designed it. So it's that was a, a thing that a lot of those fish, like I said, the smallmouth, you're going to lose a bunch no matter how perfect your setup is. But I lost very, very few that week, and a lot of them I caught just had one hook in the side of the face or in the in the mouth. So I think that was a big deal to uh, getting a lot of fish in the boat. For I, sure. I thought the symmetry of, of uh, you crediting Aaron uh, was extra special because uh, you know Aaron is has been the king of second place uh, for many, many years, and. Uh, Aaron and I have had a lot of conversation. He just beats himself up over the second places he has had. Uh, you know, it's just, I should have won. I should have won. I should have won. And, and and that really has gotten into his head. And you are probably the reigning king of second places right now. And and, and this first place win at Lake St. Clair had to really take the, the weight off your shoulders. It did for sure. I mean, winning the angle of the year in the pro circuit, that was great. But I still hadn't got that one career win, and that was what uh, that's been my goal for several years now is just to win an event, and it, it's definitely a relief, uh, a weight lifted off to to get that. I mean, that's something that nobody can ever take away from you. I've got that trophy to show that I won it, and uh, hopefully, I can get a few more to add to the collection now that I got the first one off my back. Uh, you you are you are good, and, and you're going to keep going and, and do even more. You know. Uh, a million, over a million bucks by the time you hit 30. That's that's pretty well. Uh, you're, a, you're a single man? 
Yeah, I'm not, I'm not married yet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I got, I know, I know you got a serious girlfriend, Sarah Nixon, and uh, you know, are her eyes getting wider when she sees you up on that stage with a hundred thousand dollar check? Say, man, ring shopping is not out of the question. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, she doesn't give me a hard time. She's, uh, she's definitely not in, in it for that. So she's a good one. Excellent. I think that is wonderful. I congratulate you. You've had a great career, and, and this is the first time we've spoken to you on We Fish ASA, but it's not going to be the last. It'll be the last for this year because the season is over. But when you start going back to, you know, kicking butt and taking names next season, we will talk to you again. Michael Neal, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me on. Look forward to it again, my friend. Michael Neal, Major League Fishing. Guy is the real deal. That wraps up this week's edition of the We Fish ASA podcast, the best darn fishing show on the radio or the internet in the entire USA. I'd like to thank today's guest, Dan Johnson from St. Croix. Hey, great job explaining fall turnover. Kieran Mooney, fly fisherman. How does that fit in with pro bass fishing? Well, we learned about that today from Kieran Mooney. And then we uh, introduced you to Michael Neal. Uh, Major League Fishing Pro, 32 top 10s, three wins. He's only 30 years old. Man, oh man, this guy is going to be one of the greats by the time all is said and done. I'd like to thank our sponsors, St. Croix, the best rods on earth, Calcutta, makers of a line of products that fit your fishing lifestyle and passion, Daiwa. We've got your bass covered, Daiwa. Remember that We Fish ASA has a new show every week, one hour long, like clockwork. It's available 24-7 everywhere you get your podcast. Don't forget to check out our website, wefishasa.com. If you like what you hear, please let us know. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about or someone you think we ought to have on the show, please let us know that too. I'm Steve Surley. My partner is Mr. Dave Kranz. We'll see you next week. Now, let's go fishing! I'm professional angler Kevin Van Dam, and people always ask me, what's the best and easiest way to catch fish? Well, that's simple. Keep our waterways clean and free of litter. You know, tossing your worn out lures in the lake is not a winning move. Pitch them in the trash. Do your part and join me. Visit KeepAmericaFishing.org and pledge to pitch it.